Welcome to Doc9 Tech Talks, our regular series discussing all things fintech with the leaders and visionaries driving digital change in the financial world. In this episode, RMD Mark Lusted is joined by Maria Harris, formerly Director of Intermediary Lending at Atom Bank and now an independent consultant and non-executive director. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to episode four of Dot Nine Tech Talks. I'm delighted to be joined today by Maria Harris. Maria was formerly Director of Intermediary Mortgage Lending at Bank and helped spearhead the launch of the first fully digital mortgage. Uh, and Maria is now an independent non-exec and consultant. So Maria, firstly, thank you for your time this morning. How's things? Uh, yeah, pretty good. Pretty good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, pretty busy. But yeah, so in terms of, um, obviously, you know, I think we last spoke before before lockdown, before COVID, etc. I guess we'll touch on that very briefly. How, how's things been from your side, you know, working from home and adapting to this new world? Yeah, um, I'm hoping like everyone else, most of the time I've felt pretty upbeat and pretty positive. Yeah. I'm hoping really well. I'm feeling really thankful that um, my friends, my family are all safe and well and touch wood. Um, nobody close to me has had you know, any kind of major impact, which has been um, yeah, hugely thankful for. Um, but then I have days where I completely wobble and I'm like, this is really overwhelming and it's a real effort to get dressed and you're a bit like... Um, yeah, just a bit bewildered by the whole thing, especially when you see, you know, that whatever comes out of this isn't going to be normal. We're going to have a new normal and that's quite hard to wrap your head around, not knowing what the future is going to look like. So, yeah, odd, odd wobble days, but overwhelming, pretty good. Um, I'm actually really lucky because uh, where I live, um, just outside of Newcastle in the northeast, some on the border of County Durham, so I've got all these like, amazing forests and walks and castles and stuff right on my doorstep, which has been great. The weather's been fabulous, which has helped. Um, but normally I work in London, so I'm normally away three or four days a week and I'm really, really, really missing, yeah, not being in London and not having that face-to-face engagement and interaction that I would normally have. So yeah, working from home is great. It's been lovely to be home, but yeah, I am I'm missing my human connection. Yes, I think uh, Zoom is really useful for, you know, seeing people's faces, but hopefully, uh, hopefully in the coming months we'll come back to some, some form of normality. So for, for those that, you know, aren't in the mortgage industry, uh, would it be worth you giving a quick intro to your, uh, your work at Atom uh, and, and your kind of role launching their first, first digital mortgage journey? Yeah, I, that was just a, the craziest and best thing I'll probably ever do in my life. Um, it was such a huge opportunity. Um, so to be the first, the first UK bank from scratch um, in however many, almost 100 years, um, and to be the UK's first fully digital bank built entirely on an app. Like you only ever get to do that once. It was just like a phenomenal thing to be involved in. Um, and I was, it was, and Mark, my um, chief exec was just amazing. He, he was like, here's a blank sheet of paper, design the mortgage journey that you want to have, take out all of the things that have bugged you for the last 10 years in your life and financial services and build what you want to build because you'll only get the chance to do this once. So I got to design this end-to-end mortgage journey entirely from scratch, using brand new tech, using biometrics, um, using new platforms, finding providers to do stuff differently and challenging them to, to think differently and work in a different way. And it was just, yeah, amazing thing to build. And it was so successful and, and it is so successful. Um, I think in our first year, we did over 1 billion in completions, which is 
amazing. Um, fastest growing UK bank uh, the first two years that it launched. Um, we broke every record that we could find to break. We did a um, mortgage application to full offer in 14 seconds, um, which just yeah changed the industry. Um, and the, the customer experience, which was you know what it was all designed around, is, is phenomenal. Um, I think it's still the highest rated bank on review and trust pilot. It's got like a 97% recommendation rate, which is just unheard of for a bank. Banks just don't have NPS like that. So yeah, to disrupt the market and change customer experience forever, like yeah, who wouldn't love doing that? It was an amazing thing to do. Cool. So do you want to talk us through a bit of the process? So that I think it was around sort of four years ago you were working on on that originally. So do you want to talk us a bit about how you how you built out these platforms and any particular technologies you used or lessons learned that you could share? Yeah, so um, the, there's two very different journeys that happen at the same time. So for the intermediary, um, intermediaries weren't quite ready to go down an app-based journey. We did a lot of research early on and a lot of testing with them brokers. But, they, you know, they're so used to having a portal and a portal's kind of where they, where they start their journey. Um, so we built a portal-based journey for the intermediary and then an app-based journey for the customer. But what we did is we tied the two together. So the journey actually works in parallel. So while the intermediary is paying the customer's application, all of the APIs are actually firing in the background right from the beginning, right from the minute they put the customer's name in. Um, it's calling all the different services, it's setting the customer up on the app, it's setting up their security, their credentials, everything. So by the time the broker gets to the point where they say, submit a div to see whether or not you would lend to this customer, as soon as that response comes back, yes, which is instant, all real time, all API driven, the customer gets an invite to the app. <clears throat> their account's already set up and they set up their biometrics and they get their password to log in and they're in and they can see everything that the broker's already keyed. So the customer gets this really lovely, reassuring, visual experience that you wouldn't normally get with a mortgage. Mortgages are normally quite, um, a lot of it's quite opaque and behind the scenes, whereas this was all about transparency and speed and just taking all of those horrible moments out where customers are really anxious and nervous and don't know what's happening and don't know what's going to happen so the yeah the whole journey is just built around that concept of transparency real time every single call is real time an instant decision and every touch point the intermediary and the customer and anybody else in the journey so whether it's the valuer conveyancer whoever all get the same information at the same time in real time so if you get a valuation document back, it drops into the customer's vault, the broker gets a copy and the conveyancer gets a copy. So you just take out so much of the pain that's in the journey. So yeah, really good. And partners were brilliant to work with, but really pushing them to do that real time when they've not done it before and to share when they've not shared before. Yeah. I guess in terms of, if we look at the, the mortgage journey itself, it's fundamentally not, you know, it, it, it's, I think it'd be fair to say it's a few years behind others in terms of technology. If you look at the whole market, uh, fundamentally, the journey has not, not changed hugely over the last kind of 10 years, uh, um, if you look at the whole market. And, you know, there's an optimum journey that, uh, and there's obvious things, I guess, that people would look to kind of speed up in this process, you know, not sending, having to send paper ID and not sending, having to send paper statements, etc. So I did, uh, a few years ago, did a remortgage and I, you know, I got a pack in the post, which I had to fill out and then certified copy and send it back and that was you know that was uh um yeah it's a bit of an eye opener i guess when you compared to other sectors so obviously asim had a slight advantage that uh, or big advantage that you i guess you didn't have legacy platforms or existing tech to kind of uh, um um to, to to work around did did you 
I mean, perhaps you could talk about that. So did you guys build out completely new systems or did you plug in existing technology from existing providers? How did you create such a different journey? Um, so we did both. Um, there are, so the, there's various layers to the tech. So the front end, which is the customer app, the broker portal, all the stuff around the engagement, interaction, all the real touchy-feely stuff that the customer it kind of really experiences, all of that is designed and built in-house and owned in-house and is tech that we built from scratch. Okay. Um, and we brought our own engineers in, our own coders, our own UX, our own design, everything. So all of the front end is entirely in-house. Um, and that's what makes it uniquely Atom's experience um, and actually really difficult to replicate. Mm -hmm. um, we have middleware and we use MuleSoft for our middleware. We have MuleSoft engineers who work in-house. So mm -hmm. all of our APIs and all of our calls and all of our integrations to third parties all go through the middleware layer. Mm -hmm. And then all of the stuff at the back end is predominantly plug and play. Um, so we partnered with Iris for sales and origination, with Phoebus for servicing, um, mm -hmm. with Call Credit for decisioning, and um, with Leon for biometrics and all of those third parties all integrated at the back end. Interesting. Okay. So actually, when you look at that, fundamentally, you've taken an existing technology or existing uh, uh, platforms and utilizing some new things like biometrics. But, you know, I guess what you've done is when you piece that together as a whole, you know, the, 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 it's, it's a sum of more of its parts in terms of, in terms of user experience. So you won't build anything from scratch then. But you, you know, no. I, and, and yeah, most banks would be crazy to try and build a whole bank from scratch. It's a big old undertaking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's also an interesting point. If you think about digital ID and biometrics and even things like you know, um, ABMs and open banking, etc. that actually uh, a lot of this technology is, and these features are, are actually available to, for companies to use uh, at fairly low cost, actually. Think of something like digital ID, it can cost like less, less than a dollar per lookup if you plug in something on Fido or, or similar platforms. I do sometimes wonder why these technologies aren't, aren't more used in the sector. Do you, do you think that's kind of a, um, I mean, what, what reasons do you think the sector is sort of slightly, slightly behind others in terms of adoption? Yeah, so it probably comes back to your earlier point about the fact that the industry's actually not changed for a long time. And actually the process of buying a house and getting a mortgage probably hasn't changed since the 30s. And mm. um, I think the only kind of real innovation, like really, really different was when ABMs came in, which was kind of, you know, 15 years ago. And we've not really had anything new until open bankers come along. So the actual, if you, you mapped out the process that you went through for your remortgage and where you start and all the different components, like the, that chain hasn't changed at all. And the order of that chain's always been wrong. Yeah. But it, and if you, it's developed organically and all we've done through innovation is take out what was face-to-face -face or paper. Yes. Made it machine-led. We haven't actually changed the journey, mm. which I, I find quite bewildering. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a point where that's going to flip. Um, so things like having ID would require the customer to be in control of the ID and for the ID to actually be done up front mm -hmm. and validated so it can then be shared with all of the parties. Whereas at the minute, all of the component parts are done in isolation and in silo. So as a customer, you end up doing your ID in B three or four times. Yep. And so until COVID actually, we've been so reliant on we think that it's less risk to have that as a paper-based check for yeah. somebody to physically come in with their passport or their driving license. Whereas I think COVID's been a great opportunity for people to look at things like digital ID and realize actually not only is it quite inexpensive, 
and quite easy to implement. It's yeah. actually safer and it's a better customer experience and a better customer outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, UTB have a great example of that. So UTB have been using Mnevo in their mortgage journey for a few months now. And as part of their reaction to COVID, they've now implemented that in bridging. So they've been able to keep their bridging open and using Nevo to authenticate the customer and um, to use biometrics, to do their ID and V using their passport or their driving license in app. But also because you can then share documents. Mm. So then take away the risk of your customer telling you things over the telephone or emailing you their documents unsecurely in a yeah. way. way. Um, and just t- actually taking the risk out by using digital. Yeah. I guess for that, uh, so that sounds that sounds really positive. And I guess that's automating your interaction or making it uh, much easier for one of the parties along the mortgage journey. But as you alluded to earlier, mm-hmm. the fundamental journey is you have to provide sort of same same set of documents to different parties along the way. Um, and I guess when we've spoken to people over the last couple of years, there's kind of a, a view that there's a regulatory, there's a grey area there also around you know you have to do due diligence on a customer, uh, be it the broker, the lender, the conveyancer. Are you seeing a push from a regulatory point of view to kind of help uh, um, um, you know, open up or, or, or enable parties to share and, uh, and uh, um, use that prior authentication by a different party later in the journey? So that, yeah, that, there's a few things going on. So we've got the regulatory sandbox, which has been great for getting some of these ideas in front of the regulator and for the regulator to get comfortable with them and how they work yeah. and to be able to have legal and risk and banks and different teams of people in all looking at it together and working out where it, how it would work and how it would fit. Um, but there's a few other things going on around uh, around reshaping the journey. So there's um, there's a government industry working group called the Home Buyers and Sellers Group. Mm-hmm. Um, who are working out of Westminster. So you've got um, RICs, uh, so valuers, chartered surveyors, um, banks, film societies, legal teams, all the different chains in the party, including tech, um, working out how you would rebuild the journey with all of the data mm-hmm. for everything to do with the property and the customer pulled yep. right up to the very front. Mm-hmm. And the, the biggest impact on that is actually the kind of post-offer completion bit. So for, for most customers and most banks, the onboarding and the origination is pretty, pretty much there or yep. will be as people start onboarding the tech. And then you get post offer, you get into the valuation and conveyancing process and it falls down because all of that data is back-ended. So the customer ends up with a really bad experience because they find out things after they've got their mortgage offer that yep. would be really helpful for them to know up front. Same for lenders. So the home buying and selling group are trying to change that journey and work out how do we work with all of the parties who hold the data? So whether that's land registry, ONS, some of the fintechs who are doing really clever stuff around the valuation, the, the internet of things, mm-hmm. data that's associated with property, around forecasting the value and the risk of that property, yeah. and pulling that right up to the very beginning so that before you even go and buy a house, as a potential viewer, you can see that data right up front. And if you want to share it with your lender before you even apply for a mortgage, mm-hmm. it takes all of the back-end risk out. So that, yeah, so hopefully the, the home buying and selling group's been going for a while now, but, you know, the government's involved in that, the housing minister, all of those people are all part of that. So, yeah, I don't think it's a regulatory pressure so much as more of an acceptance that there are better ways that we could do this. Okay. We need some collaboration. Um, and it's relying on a few things being in place. So at the moment, a lot of the local search authorities aren't on a digital platform or their records aren't in a, a, an easy way to access. They're not in a digital format. 
Um, and obviously the land registry have just started their digital journey and started doing new signatures and things. So there's some work there for those parties to do to enable the rest of these changes to happen. I guess um, you and I have spoken for a number of years uh, uh, around the future of mortgage tech and where, where we see where we see things going. I think it's fair to say that you know Atom, your work there, there was some, some great stuff there, and that was probably a bit an outlier in the industry, really. Uh, and you know, to say if you look at the industry as a whole, it, it, it's been a little bit behind. But last year did feel like a bit of a tipping point for me, actually, in terms of the background work that lenders have been doing and building APIs and um, you know, this industry kind of um, um, initiatives to plug uh, different systems together and automate data exchange started to feel like it was really building momentum. And I'd, I'd written a blog and, and been speaking about 2020 really being the tipping point for uh, a bigger change in the mortgage sector. So I think you, you alluded to earlier the COVID-19 situation, it's, it's kind of forced the hand, I guess, for a lot of people around, well, even things like, okay, working from home, it's kind of, people had to spin up, make that work in a number of days. Uh, things like uh, ABMs, desktop valuations, things like that. Do you think, you know, I guess one small positive from this uh, uh, would be, do you think that will spur longer lasting change and speed up the, 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 the speed of adoption of technology in the sector? Yeah, I think it would have to. Uh, there was a really interesting reaction when COVID first came and you saw lots of different splits. I guess the first thing you saw was um, different lenders reacted differently depending on how they're funded. Mm. So if you are wholesale or securitization funded, you tend to close down because that's the first market that goes. Those markets are quite hard to get liquidity. Um, and then the banks tend to come back faster because they're retail funded and then the Bank of England opened the new funding scheme. So you see the retail banks came back with products quite quickly, but at the lower end of the risk market, kind of 60, 75% LTV, where they were already quite comfortable with things like AVM, automated decisioning, um, where you needed less manual intervention and there, there was more... And more automation in that process and um, but you're starting to see now kind of six seven weeks in definitely that more lenders are coming back but more lenders are saying yes we can do ABM up to 80 or up to 85 and we can do it on some products where we wouldn't have done originally so where we maybe would have always done it on a remortgage now we will look at it for things like a buy to let remortgage or a bridging product or whatever secure other secure loans um so yeah i think his um it's always been around the comfort factor for operations and for risk on, on how, how comfortable they are using that kind of automation. And the proof will be how well the loans that the Britain in this period perform, because yep. actually if they perform just as well as they would have done with manual underwriting, a physical valuation and all other things being equal, why would you not continue to have that level of automation? Because you get a better customer experience, it's actually better operationally, it's more efficient. Like you say, it actually drives a lot of cost out of the process. So yeah, I think it will drive a lot of thinking, but I'm not even sure that, you know, post COVID that we'll go back to, I think Barclays chief exec came out, didn't he, and said that he, he couldn't see a world where headquarters of 7,000 staff being in the office Monday to Friday, nine till five will be yeah. the new norm. So for some people, they're desperate to get back to work. Um, you know, if you're in a shared house or don't have great Wi-Fi or, you know, it's like your home environment isn't conducive to working really well. Some people really want to go back to the office, but other people who are like, I've done my job from home just as well as I would have done in the office. And actually I've been more productive and there's been no, no kind of bad side of me doing that. They'll probably challenge their employers to say, why do I need to be in the office five days a week? So I think we will see a completely new way of working. Yes. It'll be interesting to see, I guess, and it's amazing how everyone's adapted. You know, I've got three 
young children and uh, including an eight month old and at the beginning I was thinking, Brian, how am I gonna fit in working amongst all this? But somehow you just you know make it make it make it work. And I think actually in terms of the added hours I get in a day for not doing four hours a day uh, commuting, um, can be a lot more productive. Um yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. Having, you know, signed a lease on a new office in London last last year, um hopefully we'll make use of it <laughs> in the months to come and, and moving forward. But I think they're definitely you know that flexible model, I guess, of a bit more a bit more of a mix of working home. Um, it could work quite well. I think it's interesting, actually. The you know, in the immediate few weeks after the, the situation sort of kicked off, um, we did see a bit of a difference in how companies were kind of adapting and coping with this. So those that were purely reliant on call centres uh, and those call centres using quite old technology that couldn't really necessarily even work from home, I think quite struggled a bit with the, the massive in uptick of inquiries around payment holidays, etc. So actually what we and those that did have digital platforms have started to kind of reap the benefits i guess uh, and the last few weeks we've seen conversations that had been bubbling away in the backgrounds around you know automated self-service and uh, chatbots and, and things using this technology to support call center has really kind of picked up and exhilarating so i think i think that probably will you know it, i think it's been a big kind of lesson to the sector of you know um really you know really needs to catch up because these things these things anyway might happen but fundamentally in terms of operational efficiency digital self-service for the sector um you know, can have a massive impact on efficiency um so and i guess I, i'm an optimist i think you're one of life's optimists as well maria in terms of technology adoption so i guess the proof will be in the pudding in, 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 the, com in the coming months um so in terms of your work with um atom so you mentioned partnerships earlier so you do you know you had an interesting partnership atom with will i am do you want to talk us through that briefly? That was a bit of a fun partnership you had. Um, so yeah, Will's still there. Um, so yeah, he, uh, Anthony Thompson um, is a marketeer by background. Um, yeah. And he's doing that marketeer thing where he's like, if Atom was a person, who, who would it be? Who would you describe? Like, what would you describe Atom yeah. as? And his first thought was, well, I am. Okay. And it didn't matter how many times he went away and had this different like thought process and mind maps and everything. He kept coming back to, well, I am. So he ended up asking his, um, so, and he's got an agent because he's written some books and stuff. So he asked his agent, if I ever wanted to get in touch with somebody like, well, I am, how would that happen? And yeah. um, it turned out that his agent was actually on holiday with, well, I am's agent. Wow. Um, so they had this conversation and he was explaining to, well, I am what we were doing. Um, and Will's backstory is really interesting because he actually grew up in, in quite a poor area um, that you kind of hand to mouth, lived in you know, a cash environment um, mm. and you know he made it big with the black eyed peas quite early on and made a lot of money really, really quickly but didn't really know anything about finance. So he told us all this amazing story where um, he'd been getting all these first lots of royalty checks through and he'd gone and bought himself this car and he was out with his friend driving um, in LA and he had all of these checks in his glove box and he wanted to save all this money up to buy his mum a house to you know, say thank you um, for supporting him and everything. And they'd stopped for petrol and his friend had opened the glove box to go and pay for this petrol and found all of these checks and he said to Will, I am, you can't have all of these in your glove box, why are they all here? And Will's like, I'm saving them to buy my mum a house. And his friend was like, you have to pay them into a bank, you can't use the checks to buy a house. And Will had no idea and he was like, you know, for kids like him who grew up, things like financial literacy, understanding how banking works, making banking really accessible and fun in a way that they understand is like something he's just really passionate about. So, um, so him and Anthony had this fantastic conversation. Um, Will then joined the board as a strategic advisor um, and Will's got his own tech companies. He does a huge amount of stuff on AI. 
Mm -hmm. um, he's got a lot of um, voice recognition, voice activation, chatbot type solutions um, that his company have built that, that are used in contact centres. Um, so there's um, some contact centres who do telecoms and mobile phone stuff where mm -hmm. um, their AI and, and frontline is entirely voice recognition rather than people. Um, so yeah, he's just really interested in the tech, but he's really interested in the future of tech as well. So um, he's done quite a lot of stuff with Adam around what future housing might look like, how you interact with your house, how you use your house to be financially, financially wealthy, I guess financially fit um so yeah he's a really fun guy as well he's, he's been up to durham he's you know we spent time with the team he's just some really lovely down to work guy and just not yeah not what you'd expect so he's great to work with i've got some fab photos of me showing him around the operations center and explained to him how it all worked what an amazing opportunity yeah <laughs> i guess you touched one there you know uh future of finance and uh and if we if we you know, uh, get our crystal ball out and, and um, think five years into the future. What do you see as the kind of opportunities for the optimum mortgage journey? What do you think that, that could look like for, for consumers? Um, so I think that, that five years out things are actually starting now with open banking. Um, and I know open banking's not really taken off yet and we've not seen you know we've not seen the adoption and I'm sure that'll be a bit slowed down with COVID. But I think it's, it's just just even the thought process behind open banking and customers having access to their data and being able to share their financial data with third parties who can help them to make decisions, to get financially fit, to understand the impact of what they do. So, you know, if if world goes back to normal and you're back in your office in London and you go back to spending 25 quid, 30 quid a week in Starbucks or Costa or whatever, having the tools in kind of in your hand that help you to understand the impact of those decisions and to help you realise like what are your financial ambitions? Is it to save up and buy a house? Is it to clear your student debt? Is it just to be financially independent? So I think open banking is actually quite a big key to unlock a lot of that stuff with the third parties who are providing them the tools and the customer engagement and the interfaces. So I think if I fast forwarded five years, I would like I would like to see a world where for the customer they could see all of their financial health in one place. Mm -hmm. That actually it doesn't matter who your provider is, it doesn't matter like almost like deconstruct everything so that you take all of these silos of, of where your money comes in and goes out away and that actually what you get is a really fluid picture of your finance and that your the size of your financial bubble kind of grows and contracts as as you need it to with your life because you've bought a house or you've had kids or you've changed jobs or you want to take six months out and travel and actually your finances become really flexible and fit around what you need and you can pull in all of these different options and third parties and products as and when you need them so i think we'll see a world where actually finance just becomes really really fluid and customers are really engaged like in a real time all of the time basis with their finances and make the money work for them yeah i guess if you think about um you know in terms of how open banking could help that journey uh not having to give paper-based statements is obviously a big win for consumers and i guess from a lender perspective getting kind of more you get access to a lot more data do you think that you'd get moved to a world where you almost have kind of sort of hyper -per personalized uh, decisions made so uh, instead of being based on you know groups of uh, 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 personas and, uh, and groups of products um, you'd have much more kind of big data driven really hyper personal decisions made about uh, um, the product as well that's right for this consumer 
Yeah, and um, big data is completely untapped, I think, for banking, but especially in mortgage right now. We've always had big data for things like actuarial tables and for managing risk, but in cohorts, so like you say, it's very much like people like you yes. in the credit band, in this type of profession, with this type of household makeup, you are likely to do this and it's quite a broad range of people so yeah I do think you'll get to a point where your own data not just your financial data and your bank statements but just your actual lifestyle data your spending patterns um, where you go to eat where you live where you spend your money where you socialize like all of those kind of things like your attitude to risk how much you save all of that kind of stuff will become very unique to you it'll almost become like your fingerprint of what kind of customer you are and if you get to the point where open banking and that fluid of finance does work and does come to fruition you get to a point where actually product providers are coming to you and offering you a service or a product that you need at the point that you need it and on a price point that's right for you i think we will get to a point where you'll have not just individual products but individual pricing and that's a really big change for the regulator to move away from um customer goes to find a product and can choose on a really comparable basis to actually having an offer which is absolutely unique to you but is built on your own dna and built on your own financial fingerprint and how do you prove then that the customer got the right product so and it's a lot to be worked out there in terms of regulation and risk but i think yeah i think you'll get to a point where you get very highly personalized products and pricing i guess um you kind of alluded to earlier that the mortgage journey itself um there's kind of obvious stuff i guess that needs to happen early on around digital id and plugging open banking and etc and you guys um atom you've got that application to uh journey down to 14 seconds for some cases uh um but if you look at the life cycle of a mortgage it's it's you know there's big bottlenecks around uh, conveyancing and that's typically where the, the the journey kind of starts to pull down a bit and, and pull a bit, bit longer so i guess other things that are happening in the sector um there was a push was it 10 years ago with the having home information packs do you remember those and uh and yeah. that, that, i think that fell over after a couple of years but the idea of putting you know so, so when you're looking at houses having kind of access to that data at the beginning so you can make uh kind of informed decisions but i guess from a technology point of view um a lot of data is now available about properties up front. Do you think that could be used much earlier in the journey, actually, to speed up that that whole uh, that whole experience? Yeah, could be and should be. Not not even just the property data. So there's you know there's property data, there's market data, but also the customer data. So even um, I don't know how long you've lived in your house and how many times you've remortgaged. Even though you've been through that process so many times, every time you do it, you have to start again, yeah. and you have to go go and get. You have to provide all of the same data about yourself. Mm. You have to go and find a load of stuff about your house, you know, from the bottom drawer of your study or wherever you keep your paperwork. You have to have some kind of risk-based assessment on your property. And that's kind of crazy because it's not just that the customer has a, that experience the first time, it's that it's perpetual. We've made it so that every time you remortgage your product transfer or borrow more money or want to pay some money back, you have to go through this like really onerous process. So yeah, I think I would like to see the data not just brought up to the front, but also given to the customer. I want the I would really like the customer to have absolute control of all of the data about their property, about the risk associated with their property, around what's happening in their local area, land searches, all of that kind of stuff. And that when the customer wants to do something with their finances, they choose to share it. That they share it with whatever 
provider, whatever product provider they want to, and that they're not having to go through the same thing every single yeah. time. But you know, the, for that to happen, you need some kind of secure wallet, some kind of you know property logbook, whether that's distributed ledger or something where the customer is um, able to access all of that, but to have it in a really safe environment where they're protected. Um, but also in a way that's easy for them to then connect that data to other people in a really safe way. Um, so, you know, some of the proof of concept that have been done with the likes of um, Codute, um, who are using our 3Corder platform, and um, they did a really, really cool proof of concept last year. And um, they've done some work with the land registry and stuff as well. It's all, on, um, all available online. Um, and yeah, the first, I think the first one who cracks that and just makes it so safe and so secure for the customer and trusted so that it can be trusted between the customer, their intermediary, their lender, any other third party in that chain. I think that will be the point where the whole journey pivots. Yeah. There was a fair amount of excitement also around blockchain and distributed ledgers a few years ago. And we actually built a proof of concept mortgage uh, journey on um, um, Ethereum. Um, but I guess when we looked at that, the amount of parties that would have to agree how this works along the journey, it was, it was you know, there was, wasn't necessarily a technology barrier, uh, but it's around kind of curation uh, of an industry around sort of coalescing around using this technology. Are you, are you seeing anything, you know, in terms of the hype curve of blockchain, everyone's super excited. Uh, mm -hmm. Then often what happens is people you know, in the general market will forget about it, but in the background, you've got, you know, the, the real work kind of um, starting up uh, and real products and services being delivered. Are you seeing anything in the market at the moment? happening around blockchain and um, that sort of technology? Yeah, so the, the Cordu proof of concept and pilot was definitely um, definitely exciting um, and had um, some really big tier one banks involved, um, value as conveyance as customers, so it, it, all of the different value chain, that was really, really exciting and really interesting. Um, so there's definitely some thinking going on there. I think if you get to the point where you get, you know, two or three of the big banks, the kind of big six start using it, <clears throat> it becomes more kind of acceptable and more, there's more awareness around it then for the rest of the banks to feel comfortable that, that there's some, um, some credibility to it. Um, so there was um, some IBM have done some really interesting stuff on blockchain as well. So they use blockchain a lot in some other industries around um, logistics, food, transportation, that kind of stuff. Um, and you can completely see the comparisons between those products and buying a house because actually it's just different data, but the journey is exactly the same. Um, so IBM have taken a real, a really different approach where they've um, they did their purchase of Red Hat so that they can start being more open and, and being able to integrate to other third parties, but also having this kind of marketplace approach where um, I think it was this week Thought Machine announced they were one of the partners who are now in um, IBM's marketplace. So if a bank wanted to go and completely re-platform and they use IBM's cloud and IBM's blockchain to do it, but what they can do is have all of these choice of other third parties that they can use for their service and platform or for their customer engagement channel. Or So that, that whole distributed ledger thing, <clears throat> as well as just having the technology is also about changing the thought process that it's not actually just about taking out a core banking platform and putting distributed ledger in it's actually how do you make something like distributed ledger work with all of your platforms or all of your other systems and processes and procedures and customer journeys and use it to make them better and to put the customer at the heart of what you're doing because that's what blockchain essentially does is it gives the customer control and gives the customer something that 
that that like I say safe and secure and really shareable so yeah I think there's a lot of mileage to go with distributed ledger where we haven't even started kind of seeing what it could do and what the benefits would be and there's still a lot of skepticism as well about whether or not it's great technology trying to find a use case whereas actually I think the use case is pretty clear because using distributed ledger would would fix a lot of the stuff we just talked about about where data sits and how data gets shared and customers not having to provide ID and B four times or every time they want to remortgage so yeah I think distributed ledger's got a long a long way to go in the industry um, I know you and I have had the API conversation before as well. So um, obviously I'm a big fan of APIs. It's the thing that makes Atom instant and real time and provides this really great experience. But I just, I find our industry's approach to API just really baffling. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only do we have a big spaghetti junction of legacy systems, third party plugins, manual handoffs from one provider to another provider, we're then using APIs on top of that to create a whole new spaghetti junction without undoing the old one first. Um, and the industry's lack of collaboration just drives me absolutely potty. So we've got individual banks connecting their API to individual mortgage broker CRM systems or through people like 27 Tech and Knowledge Bank who've been amazing during COVID, by the way, um, adapting and giving um, brokers data and, and insight into what's happening. They've done a phenomenal job. Um, but what you're ending up with then is, you know, 170 lenders, banks, building societies and lenders, 10,000 intermediaries, all on different systems, all individually plugging APIs into each other instead of the industry sitting down and coming up with an API strategy and an API solution where we can build a little bit like open banking where we can build one set of credentials we all agree data we all agree what the data points and then the naming of the conventions and all of that are in the security and we all you know have choice but have a solution that's a bit neater than what we're doing now I think blockchain will help us undo some of this I think we're actually just creating a monster right now right interesting yeah I guess it's uh I guess that's the challenge that people are kind of working through challenges around legacy platforms and there's immediate business needs. And of course, you know, board level, they're going to be asking if we invest in this, when are we going to get an RI on this? And, you know, often brokers are still going to give business at the moment based on rates. So that kind of, it, it takes people to take a bit more of a longer term view and thinking, okay, as a sector, there are those that are going to innovate and quite radically transform and, and, and deliver a better experience faster to brokers, to consumers. And that will become a key differentiator for, in, in future, uh, in, in addition to price. Um, so, yeah, I think it's some interesting years ahead in, in the sector, but good that these kind of uh, the first steps are starting to happen, I guess. Um, so it actually dovetails nicely onto your, your current work then. So you're, you you left Atom, sort of, was it in the last year, uh, to become uh, you're an independent consultant now and you work with financial companies and I think you're a non-exec as well for, uh, for some banks. Do you, do you want to give us an overview of what you're up to now? Yeah, so um, yeah, leaving Atom was a really big decision. It was really tough to do. Um, but there were so many other um, third parties and lenders and stuff out there who who want to do this and have a real desire to do it. Um, but if you don't, if you're not, the tech, the tech landscape is really complicated and there's so many options. And like you say, knowing which horse to back is a really big decision. And the days of um, doing a project where you would go to your board and say, we want to put a new platform in, um, and you would, the expectation was, you know, it would be in for five or 10 years, and you had five or 10 years for it to pay for itself. Like those days are gone. And even 
even the digital brokers and the neo banks who are kind of five years in now are realizing they've got legacy because anything yeah. that you built five years ago is now out of date already and it goes out of date so quickly. Um, so the reason I went self-employed and the reason I left Atom is because there were all of these firms that were like, we really, really need help with this stuff. We need help to navigate it, but we also don't know what it is that we need. Do we do a really big scale digital transformation now and just upend everything, knowing that in five years time, the world's going to look really different? Or do we go through and find bits of things that we can automate or bits of things that we can fix and just improve the journey using what we've got while we wait and see what happens with things like blockchain and distributed ledger and whether or not the home buying and selling um, journey actually does get turned on its head and we have to rewrite everything anyway. Um, so yeah, there was a huge opportunity just to go and help people to, to think this through, to ask the right questions. Um, I, so I've been doing this since October. Um, I've had, uh, and it's great because I get to work with some really, really interesting bits of market from um, 27 Tech doing product search right at the very beginning of the intermediary journey. Um, I did some really nice work with like Coracle and Brightstar around how they engage with customers, how they package for their intermediaries, all of the different touch points, what systems they use, whether or not API is the right thing for them and how they would do that. Um, through to some lenders and um, building societies who are looking at mortgage onboarding, managing their book, that kind of stuff. And then right through to home buying and selling group um, and doing some stuff on things like digital payments and working with the Bank of England on what the future of um, completion might look like. And then, yeah, I sit on the board of United Trust Bank, um, which is my first kind of official non-exec role, independent led, um, which is cool. Um, they, they're, just, they're such a lovely bank to work with. And they're a specialist bank in my background, not specialist. Um, so it's been great to bring a retail focus to that, where they've all got amazing experience in investment banking and commercial banking and stuff, which is quite new for me, um, whereas I come from a, a very retail focus. So yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant. So I've got some really lovely things that I'm working on right now. I get to have amazing conversations. Um, but the biggest thing I think that I found everywhere I've been is around, it's around mindset and culture. Um, so when you were talking earlier about some of the legacy banks and the issues that they have, um, so like RBS NatWest closing both last week was um, like a really good example of this where that whole mentality around um, tech for tech's sake and having this kind of field of dreams approach that you build something really good, you build really, really good tech. And, and people will just come. And I think Bo's a great example of, you know, that doesn't work. It's, it, customers won't just come because you've got great tech. And where you work with the likes of, you know, Starling and Monzo, who, who completely understand an atom that actually it's about your DNA and the, the technology is a reflection of who you are as an organization. And it has to be around your strategy and your brand and your approach to customers and your product design and everything all have to be aligned and your technology is just a reflection of that because the tech's just tech it's just the enabler it's not actually you know shouldn't be a thing in its own right tech for tech's sake so a lot of the conversations that i have now are around is it tech that you need or actually are you just following the crowd we've got a lot of sheep mentality in the industry like all these other people are doing something therefore we should all go and do it too like apis mm -hmm. um, or actually what is it that you're trying to fix what is the thing that's really important to you and 
do you have to build that tech yourself or actually do you just go and partner with people who do this really really well and then you benefit from all of the you know research and development and other stuff that they do so spend a lot of time talking about partnerships about connecting people to the right solutions but also introducing them to other tech firms who can actually do bits of what they're thinking they should do themselves and they don't need to mindset there as well and one of the things also related to that i guess is around process of how they build and design digital products and it still amazes me just how many uh kind of lenders and brokers and, uh, and others in the sector that still don't do user testing as part of the process and you mentioned earlier you work at atom i think you said that you tested in a lab with, with brokers early on before you design a product so often the yeah. first thing we do actually is do a bit of an audit and look at okay if you test your user experience with real customers be they brokers or, or, or borrowers in a lab uh, in a kind of controlled environment it can be quite an eye-opener often often can um can be uh, can be quite a good way of building sort of momentum for change um is there, as an end point is there is there any kind of um, advice you'd give to any incumbents that are listening in now uh, that are quite early in on that journey of how, how they would you know start their start considering how they'd approach their digital transformation yeah so the the thing that always amazes me when i go into end firms for the first time is um, like people are so well documented in our industry because it is high regulated and it's a complex product so you go in and you find people have all this amazing documents documentation around policy procedures and um, systems contingency in in covid again covid's kind of thrown that up because contingency planning was always around having the disaster recovery site and people yeah. all going to disaster recovery straight out the window um, but when you go in and you ask them um, where's your customer journey? Show me the customer journey. Show me the journey that the customer goes through. Most people don't have that mapped out. So the, the first thing that I would always say to any company I go into is map out your customer journey. Um, even if you have to do it in, in little bite-sized chunks while you get used to the process, but you know, map out all of your touch points in the process right from the very first interaction. Um, where are all of the engagement points? Where are all of the comms points? Even if you don't actually send a comm, but you know, where are your gaps? where are the where are the pain where are the pain points where are you doing a swivel chair process and handing something off to another system or another person where have you got a manual intervention where are your time bandits like where does something take three days where you're like why can that not happen in like straight away yeah and if you map out your customer journey whether you're going to do a really big scale transformation or whether you actually just want to pick a couple of pain points and fix them having your existing customer journey will either help to help you draw what your new journey looks like and therefore drive your tech decisions around what you need to make that happen or take all of those things that you've learned from mapping out your journey and prioritize them around whatever is important to you so whether that's you want a better customer experience or you want increased efficiency or you want to just take a lot of manual time and process out whatever it is prioritize it by whatever means work for you and start picking them off one by one and it's amazing how quickly when you do that you start to get momentum and you get this really feel good factor is like stuff starts happening the stuff starts getting better and you don't always have to go in and do big change actually sometimes fixing a load of what feel like quite small things have a really big impact I think showing that early success as well, it kind of naturally builds momentum, doesn't it, uh, as well, which is really positive. Good. Well, that's a really good uh, piece of positive advice to, to end, I guess, with today. So um, thanks again for your, your time, Maria. Hopefully uh, in the next few months we can finally catch up in person, uh, grab, grab lunch or similar, and um, uh, it'd be great to hear what you're up to um, in the coming months. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. It was really good to do, it was good to do this. And um, yeah, stay safe, everyone. Cool. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.